Welcome to the Shortwave Report for September 7, 2012. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's www.outfarpress.com, you can find a schedule for dozens of international broadcasters in English. There you can also listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, Spanish National Radio, Radio Havana Cuba, NHK Japan, and The Voice of Russia. We'll begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Representatives from 50 countries met in Berlin to discuss Syria's future economy. In Egypt, President Morsi called for regime change in Syria, and women in veils returned to the TV news. A court in Bahrain upheld sentences against leaders of last year's demonstrations. Mali's interim leadership has requested military assistance to free the North. A man opened fire at an electoral celebration held by a French separatist party in Montreal, Quebec. Radio Deutsche Welle. Representatives from 50 countries have met in Berlin to discuss Syria's future economy after the war there ends. Germany's Foreign Minister Guido Westerwelle called on those present from the Syrian opposition movement to create conditions that would make it easier for a transitional government to take power. In Syria on Tuesday, the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross met with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in Damascus to discuss the country's humanitarian situation. The Red Cross described the talks afterwards as positive, while Syrian state television said that Assad pledged his support for the aid organization's activities in Syria, provided it did not take sides in the conflict. Egypt's president, Mohamed Morsi, has said that the time for a regime change in the country is now. During a speech at the Arab League headquarters in Cairo, he appealed for a diplomatic end to the crisis. In other developments, the UN Arab League envoy Lakhdar Brahimi has described the death toll in the Syria conflict as staggering. He also said the damage that has been caused by the violence is catastrophic. A veiled anchorwoman read the news on Egypt state television for the first time on Sunday, reflecting a shift in official media since the overthrow of Hosni Mubarak and the subsequent rise of Islamists. The anchor, Fatma Nabil, made her first appearance on the Channel 1 midday broadcast wearing a black suit and a cream-coloured scarf or hijab covering her hair and neck. Until the revolution that toppled President Hosni Mubarak last year, Women in Islamic headscarves and particularly full-face veils had been kept firmly out of the media. Women who wore the hijab were allowed to work in Egypt's radio and television union as long as it was off-camera. A court in Bahrain upheld on Tuesday sentences against 20 leading figures of last year's unsuccessful uprising. They were plotting to overthrow the government or were accused of that and verdicts were initially issued by a military court and subsequently upheld by a civilian one. 
Mali's interim leadership has made a formal request to the West African regional body ECOWAS for military assistance to help free the country's north, which has been occupied since April, among others, by Islamist rebels. This allows the bloc and the African Union to seek a UN Security Council mandate to send troops into the country, which has seen widespread violence in recent months. Once regarded as an example of African democracy, Mali was plunged into chaos in March when soldiers toppled the president. This coup in the south helped rebels from the north to seize nearly two-thirds of the country's territory, though they had already made significant gains prior to the March coup. An election victory speech in the Canadian city of Montreal has been stopped short by a shooting. One person was killed and another seriously wounded when a man armed with a rifle opened fire. He was quickly arrested. The incident interrupted a victory speech from Pauline Marois, the leader of the separatist Parti Québécois, or PQ. The PQ won a minority government in the polls, meaning Marois is likely to become Quebec's first female premier, displacing Liberal incumbent Jean Charest. The PQ favours independence for French-speaking Canada and has held referenda on the issue in the past. With a minority in Parliament, however, it is unlikely to push for separation again. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, mediacenter.dw-world.de. Next, Spanish National Radio. The Spanish government is advancing money to Bankia, a bank nationalized to prevent it from collapsing. The International Monetary Fund and European Union are demanding that Greeks work six days a week and longer hours if they are to continue financial support. In South Africa, security guards are now using rubber bullets on striking miners. When the guards killed 34 miners two weeks ago, the police arrested 270 of the striking miners and charged them with murder. Julian Assange expects to wait six months to a year for a deal to free him from the Ecuadorian embassy. Spanish National Radio. It's been announced tonight that Spain's fourth largest high street lender is to receive an immediate capital ejection of 4.5 billion euros from the Spanish state. Bankia, which was nationalized in May this year to prevent it from going bust, is to receive the money from the FROB, the Fund for Ordered Bank Restructuring, which was set up to help Spanish banks in trouble. The fund says the money is in advance on the loan of up to 100 billion euros that Spain will receive from Europe to help its troubled banking sector. Last Friday, Bankia announced losses of just under 4.5 billion euros for the first half of this year. And in May, the government said it would make a total of 19 billion euros available to Bankia to guarantee its viability. The Troika, comprising the International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank and the European Union, responsible for Greece's bailout funds and the conditions attached to them, is calling on Greeks to work six days a week and longer hours per day. Greeks already work more hours than most of the Europeans. The Troika has asked the Greek government to cut another 14.5 billion euros from the state budget and to impose still harsher measures on workers and let private companies set rules for hiring and firing and other conditions according to their needs. 
The demand was made in a confidential email sent by Troika representatives to the Greek ministries of labor and the economy and has been leaked by the financial daily Imersisia. Meanwhile, a poll released by the Financial Times shows that only a fourth of Germans think Greece should stay in the Eurozone or receive money from other European countries. Nearly half of Germans polled did not believe that Greece would ever be able to reform its economy sufficiently to free itself from international support. In Italy and Spain, however, respondents were far more reluctant to cut Greece loose. In a new shooting incident at a South African mine, security guards have wounded four striking gold miners with rubber bullets near Johannesburg. The mine is partly owned by a company in which President Jacob Zuma's nephew, Kulubuse, and Nelson Mandela's grandson, Kwondwa, have a stake. Miners have been involved in a long-running pay dispute with the company. The incident follows a killing of 34 striking miners by police at a platinum mine near Johannesburg two weeks ago. After today's shooting, a police spokesman said security guards used rubber bullets to break up a scuffle between striking and non-striking workers at the Gold One mine, formerly known as Aurora. The shooting at the Platinum mine two weeks ago sparked a national outcry. Although the police fired the shots, some 270 striking miners were arrested and charged with murdering the 34. 162 of them have now been released, and the murder charges against them dropped. Julian Assange expects to wait six months to a year for a deal to free him from Ecuador's embassy in London and hopes Sweden will drop its case against him, according to statements by the WikiLeaks founder in an interview broadcast yesterday. The former computer hacker has been holed up in the embassy for more than two months, seeking to avoid being sent to Sweden for questioning over rape and sexual assault allegations and triggering a diplomatic spat with Britain. Talks over Mr. Assange's fate resumed this week, and Ecuador's government said it was optimistic it would be able to strike a deal with Britain for Mr. Assange to receive guarantees he would not be further extradited from Sweden to the United States. Ecuador granted him asylum earlier this month, saying that it shares his fears that he could face charges in the United States over the publication in 2010 by WikiLeaks of thousands of secret U.S. diplomatic cables. Those reports were from Spanish National Radio, heard from 5 to 6 p.m. at 6055 and podcasting at rtve.es. Also, World Radio Network is now podcasting their shows at wrn.org. All the times I'm announcing are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so adjust them to your time zone. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba will sponsor and hold the peace talks between the Colombian government and FARC rebels. Thirteen civilians were killed by a U.S. drone strike last weekend in Yemen. The Chinese government released an official commentary before Hillary Clinton arrived, calling on the U.S. to stop manipulating Southeast Asia and to stop arms sales to Taiwan. Radio Havana, Cuba. The Cuban Foreign Ministry has issued a statement on the role being played by Cuba as a sponsor of peace talks between the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, FARC, during a meeting held September the 4th in Havana. In the statement, the Foreign Ministry explains that the Cuban Revolution has had a historic commitment towards peace in Colombia and the efforts aimed at putting an end to the political, social, and military conflict in that Latin American nation. 
The Cuban government has made discreet and constructive efforts to contribute to find a negotiated solution, always in response to requests from the parties involved and without influencing in the least their respective stands. The Foreign Ministry statement notes that the Cuban government has offered its cooperation and support to hold exploratory talks that may lead to a peace process and has also participated as a guarantor during the deliberations. The Cuban government will continue to offer its solidarity, assistance, and good offices in favor of this endeavor for as long as the Colombian government and the FARC-EP rebel forces wish. Outrage has erupted in Yemen over the killing of 13 civilians in a U.S. drone strike on Sunday. Yemeni government officials have confirmed the toll, saying the intended target of the strike was completely missed. According to CNN, outraged family members attempted to deliver the victims' bodies to the residence of Yemeni President Abdurabu Hadi, but were denied entry. The Yemeni government says it is investigating. And the United States must take concrete steps to improve its relations with China, according to a commentary published by the official Xinhua News Agency on Tuesday, ahead of the arrival in Beijing of U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The editorial says that while the U.S. government has repeatedly made welcoming remarks on China's rise, at the same time it has shown little respect for China's sovereign rights in the area. It points out that Washington has been working with a number of Southeast Asian nations to force China into a multinational solution to territorial disagreements in the South China Sea, despite China's strong opposition. Additionally, even though the previous U.S. government vowed to gradually wind down and eventually end its arms sales to Taiwan in a communique with China signed in 1982, U.S. presidents seem to show no interest and no intention of honoring that particular commitment and continue to ship weapons to an area that is an inalienable part of China. In the editorial published by the Xinhua News Agency, it said that the U.S. government must understand that when it comes to matters concerning China's sovereignty and territorial integrity, Beijing will not compromise with anyone, including Washington. And the commentary notes that the United States should stop its role as a troublemaker sitting behind some nations in the region and pulling strings. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba, heard from 1 to 2 p.m. at 11760, and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6060, or 6000, also streaming on the web from 6 p.m. to midnight at www.radiohc and now podcasting at World Radio Network, that is, wrn.org. Next, NHK World Radio Japan. The Asia-Pacific Economic Forum concluded with an agreement to cut tariffs on green products such as solar panels. There is a push to complete negotiations on the Trans-Pacific Free Trade Agreement. Japanese cabinet ministers are discussing the future of nuclear power and waste when the majority of citizens want zero nuclear energy. The Japanese government chose a site north of Tokyo to bury the waste from the Fukushima disaster, but local citizens say it is totally unacceptable. A steam blast occurred at the oldest nuclear plant in France, but the operators have reported no leaks. NHK World Radio Japan 
The Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum has wrapped up after participants agreed to cut tariffs on about 50 environmentally friendly products. Foreign Affairs and Trade Chiefs from the 21 APEC members ended their two-day ministerial talks in the Russian city of Vladivostok on Thursday. A joint statement released after the talks calls for tariff cuts on 54 items, including solar panels. Lowering tariffs on eco-friendly products was the biggest issue at the meeting. Japan and the United States requested that the cuts should cover a wide range of products, but China and some other countries were cautious because they want to protect their domestic industries. The leaders extended their discussions for two hours on Thursday and finally agreed to narrow down the list of items covered by the tariff cuts. The discussions highlighted conflicting interests among APIC members and difficulty in achieving APIC's goal of economic integration. The United States, Australia and seven other countries have agreed to speed up negotiations on the Trans-Pacific Free Trade Agreement. Ministers from the nine countries met in Vladivostok on Thursday on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. The Trans-Pacific Partnership aims to liberalize trade and investment throughout the Pacific region by eliminating all tariff barriers. The ministers confirmed at Thursday's meeting that Canada and Mexico will join the talks. Officials from Japan did not take part in the meeting. Japan announced last year it would start consultations with the negotiating parties, but divided domestic opinion has so far delayed a final decision. Cabinet ministers in charge of energy policy are discussing the possible challenges of a non-nuclear Japan. National Policy Minister Motohisa Furukawa told the ministers on Tuesday that opinion polls show more than half of Japanese citizens want to scrap nuclear power. But Industry Minister Yukio Edano said there will be problems to overcome if the country makes that decision. He said immediately shutting down the nation's reactors could cut Japan's power supply by 30%, causing shortages. He said that the country must also deal with spent nuclear fuel. Aomori Prefecture in the northeast is storing spent fuel on condition that it will ultimately be cycle, recycled. The Japanese government has proposed a site in Tochigi Prefecture north of Tokyo to dispose of radioactive waste from the accident at the Fukushima Daiichi plant. It is the first time the central government has made such a proposal to a prefectural government. Senior Vice Environment Minister Katsuhiko Yokomitsu made the proposal to Tochigi Governor Tomikazu Fukuda on Monday. The central government is responsible for disposing of more than 42,000 tons of radioactive ash and mud in nine prefectures. Levels of cesium in the waste are above the government standard of 8,000 becquerels per kilogram. Tochigi Prefecture is already temporarily storing about 9,000 tons of radioactive waste at sewage treatment and other facilities. The Environment Ministry says a four-hectare national forest in Tochigi's Yaita city is large enough for the purpose and far enough from the closest residential area and water source. The ministry will brief people living near the site on the need and safety of the planned facility. The mayor of Yaita city has rejected the central government's proposal to build a disposal site for radioactive waste in his city. Mayor Tadashi Endo told Senior Vice Environment Minister Katsuhiko Yokomitsu on Monday that the proposal is totally unacceptable. 
After the meeting, Endo told reporters the proposal came to him as a bolt out of the blue. He also said the city has already been suffering from unfounded rumors stemming from the Fukushima nuclear accident. Mayor Endo says residents will never agree to host the disposal site. A steam blast occurred at France's oldest nuclear power plant on Wednesday. The plant operator is reporting no radioactive leaks. The blast took place at the Fessenheim complex in the east of the country near the German border. Operator Electricité de France says hydrogen peroxide water used for maintenance work generated a burst of steam in a chemical reaction. It says the work was being carried out in a separate facility away from the reactors. The plant's union says two workers were injured with slight burns. In April, a minor fire occurred at the 34-year-old plant. President François Hollande has pledged to close it down during his term in office. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan, heard from 10 p.m. to 10:30 at 6110, or on the web at www.nhk.or.jp. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report, or would like to make a donation for production cost of this unfunded program, I may be reached through the website or by writing to Dan Roberts at PO Box 1162. Willits, California, nine five four nine zero. Please support independently produced radio programs like the Shortwave Report, like an anonymous listener did this week. We will conclude with the voice of Russia. While most aspects of the U.S. economy shrink, there have been record sales of U.S. weapons to the world. Bishop Desmond Tutu has called for George W. Bush and Tony Blair to be brought to trial for war crimes. The Voice of Russia. The U.S. economy overall may be trundling along at a pedestrian 1.7 growth, and this is only half of its long-term average. And the national unemployment rate may be at a stubbornly high 8.3 percent. But there is one American industry that has literally been going great guns during the last year, and that. Is the U.S. arms and weapons trade? According to a report prepared by the Congressional Research Service, the United States sold 66.3 billion dollars of weapons overseas during 2011, representing 78 percent of all arms sales. This represents about 90 percent increase over and above the previous record high of U.S. arms sales in 2008. The report states that the record sales levels were boosted by a 33.4 billion dollar contract with Saudi Arabia. And sales to other Gulf states, predominantly based upon fears of Iran's nuclear program. Reuters notes that the Saudi contract included 84 Boeing F-15 fighters and a fleet of Boeing helicopters. And also drawing on fears of Gulf security, the report confirms that the United Arab Emirates purchased a Lockheed Martin high-altitude missile shield and 16 Chinook helicopters from Boeing. The total combined worth of the contracts coming to 4.5 billion dollars. Globally, the United States now accounts for 78% of all arms sales, in a year which also saw most other international firms record falling revenues. The four major European suppliers—France, the UK, Germany, and Italy—saw their market share drop 7.2% from 12.2% in 2010, while Russian arms sales halved to 4.8 billion dollars. Only France saw revenues rise up 1.8 billion dollars against the previous year. 
With much of Europe and America struggling economically, it should not be a surprise that other significant markets for arms sales have generally been from the world's developing nations. $71.5 billion of global arms sales were completed with these countries, with the United States' share of this being $56.3 billion. Since the start of 2008, 81.4% of U.S. arms sales agreements have gone to the Middle East, while 16% have gone to Asian countries. $4.1 billion purchased 10 Boeing transport planes for India, while $2 billion provided Taiwan with Patriot anti-missile batteries. Both these sales represent a further militarization to regions already high in conflict. High tensions have long existed between India and its nuclear neighbor Pakistan, while China continues to claim Taiwan as a breakaway province rather than a sovereign state. The selling of arms to Saudi Arabia is, however, not without controversy. The country has continued to receive steady flows of arms from the United States despite being on a State Department watch list for human rights violations. Since the start of 2004, Saudi Arabia has purchased $75.7 billion in arms. Despite the flow in sales, the reports found that the international arms market was not possibly growing overall, and suppliers have attracted the customers by providing them with flexible finance options and licensed products in their dealings. So in investment terms, arms sales are proven recession-proof. American and coalition forces may finally have left Iraq, but the political arguments regarding the legitimacy of the initial evasion, which began in 2003, still remain. And veteran peace campaigner Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a Nobel Peace Prize winner for his work against apartheid in South Africa, has called for American President George W. Bush and British Prime Minister Tony Blair to be brought to trial for war crimes at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. The Archbishop had earlier refused to share a platform with the British Prime Minister at a leadership summit in Johannesburg because he did not believe it would be appropriate because he could not sit with someone who justified the invasion of Iraq with a lie. The latest attack from the Archbishop comes from an article written in the British Observer newspaper. The Archbishop condemns the immorality of the decision to go to war and emphasized that as a result, this destabilized and polarized the world to a greater extent than any other conflict in history. He also adds that the U.S. and U.K. leaders should have sought a sophisticated and diplomatic solution to the problem rather than act like playground bullies. The Archbishop's attack is particularly appropriate since both Blair and Bush have used their Christian faith to justify the invasion on moral grounds. However, in Desmond Tutu's view, their actions drove the world apart and more importantly reflect on current conflicts too. They have driven us to the edge of a precipice where we now stand, with the specter of Syria and Iran before us, he wrote. Archbishop Tudu adds that he personally spoke to U.S. National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice and asked that more time be given to ascertain whether weapons of mass destruction existed in the country. He argued that if this were true, the actions of the government would have the support of virtually the whole world. However, his concerns were brushed aside and advised that there was too much at risk and that the president would not wait. An allusion, perhaps, to the fallacious belief that Saddam Hussein could formulate an attack within 45 minutes. 
and he alludes to an implicit double standard in their decision. On what grounds do we decide that Robert Mugabe should go to the International Criminal Court, Tony Blair should join the International Speaker's Circuit, Bin Laden should be assassinated, but Iraq should be invaded, not because it possesses weapons of mass destruction as Mr. Bush's chief supporter, Mr. Blair, confessed last week, but in order to get rid of Saddam Hussein. And adding weight to the impression of one role for the Western powers and another for leaders in other countries, he noted that in a consistent world, they should be treated in a similar way to leaders in Asia and Africa, who had been brought to trial in The Hague for their actions. Those reports were from the voice of Russia. Russia is now heard from 6 p.m. to 11 at 15425-9800 and 9665 or through their website www.english.ruvr.ru. All the times I've announced are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcast using a shortwave radio at home, which is far simpler than you might think. However, if you use the internet, listening globally is also quite easy. See the links at this program's website. Every Friday morning, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's www.ng.org outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find internet links for international broadcasters, make a safe donation through PayPal, and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report is free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.